Welcome to Near Death Experience Podcast. I'm Chaz Hathaway. Today's experience is by Brian, and his experience can be found on enderf.org, the Near Death Experience Research Foundation website. In mid April of 1989, on a Sunday, I was driving back to my home from a trade show at a resort. As I drove, I thought of the beautiful early spring day, the leaves beginning to show on the trees. The weather was beautiful, with temperatures about 75 degrees Fahrenheit or so. I was driving northbound on the highway. On the radio was a great song, although I have never been able to remember what that song was. And I was happy at going home after having a work at the trade show that weekend. I'd been asked to be a groomsman in a longtime friend's wedding that weekend, but the boss said I couldn't get it off. I was disappointed at missing the wedding and not getting to see my friend, but he was never far from my mind during that day. I was thinking as I drove that my friend would be at the reception at about that time and wondered how the service went. I saw a car approaching the highway, a double-lane divided highway, from the west on a gravel road. I saw the car cross the southbound lanes of traffic and drive through the medium approaching the stop sign that governed the traffic on that little road to stop before continuing across the northbound lanes of traffic. In looking back, I realized that the car had never stopped at the stop sign before driving across the southbound lanes of traffic. Rather than stopping at the stop sign before driving across the northbound lanes of traffic, those in which I was driving in at the time, the car continued past the stop sign directly into the path of my car. In looking back on the experience, it seems strange how one's perceptions are altered under that sort of stress. My mind saw the car as a huge mid-70s Lincoln Town car. I was driving a much smaller type of car. In examining the reason for this misperception, the car was not actually a huge car, but rather a mid-sized 80s model, mid-sized Oldsmobile. I've only been able to determine that the car was so close my mind changed it into a big model. I did, however, get the color right. It was green. Everything slowed to slow motion time. I said or thought an expletive. I still believe that I said it, but considering how little time I had in this area of of the experience, I think my mind was working so very fast that I just thought that I had said that expletive. I recall that my right hand pulled the gear shift backward. It was an automatic, but like most all-American cars, that movement will make the car's transmission shift to a lower gear when the speed becomes appropriate for the car to do so. At the same time, I turned the steering wheel hard left as the green car was traveling from my left to my right. I remember thinking, If I can just hit this car in the rear axle, it will spin the car on the front axle out of my way and maybe we, the elderly man driving the car and the elderly woman in the passenger seat, who I could clearly see, will live through this thing. 
my mind processed the image of them in a car spinning on its front axle, then processed the image of them in the car being struck dead at center at the passenger door with my car. I remember there was no sound other than the wind. I recall thinking, that's really weird. Where's the wind? I thought, okay, there isn't going to be any sound until the cars hit. Then I wondered why my car wasn't turning. I had turned the wheel hard with, uh, left with my hand, but nothing happened. I reached a point as the cars neared where I realized that there was absolutely nothing I could do to affect the outcome of this situation. I was just there, and it was going to happen all around me. That was the first time in my life, and the last time in my life, that I had come to that realization. I watched the people in the other car getting closer and closer. At first a few feet, then inches. The man was looking forward through the windshield. The woman was turned slightly toward him, and I believe talking to him. She held what I thought was a small transistor radio in her right hand near her right ear. I thought, I haven't seen a radio like that since about 1971 or so. Then contact was made, and sure enough, I heard the sound of the impact and the view of the people was immediately obscured by steam from the radiator coming or of my car bursting. I remember knowing that was what it was. My car began to spin slowly toward the west. I could not see at all because of the steam, and I remember thinking, all I really need is for a tractor trailer to plow into us with this going on, boy, I'd sure love to, uh, I'd sure like to see that one coming. Then I reasoned that the wind was out of the west, and since my car was spinning from north to west, that as soon as I had reached a point where it had spun facing southwest, that the steam would probably no longer block my vision. Sure enough, when the car spun facing the southwest, the steam was carried out of my field of view, and I could see down the highway from the direction in which I had just come. I remember thinking, man, am I lucky there isn't a truck bearing down on us. Then my car stopped. Realizing that my car had stopped, I thought, man, I've got to get out of here. I remember my head bowing and my chin striking my chest. And then there was a big foofing sound. The only way I can describe that sound, it's like that made when you're, you lock your lower lip behind your upper teeth and then blow your lip back out into normal position, foofing. I recall feeling as if I was foofed, like I was a spitwad being quickly forced through a straw. I heard and felt the boofing. I was standing, for lack of a better word, the elevation was about right, and I seemed to be generally vertical in orientation to the rest of the world, next to the driver's door of my car. I looked at the guy sitting there and thought, hey, that's me, and I'm sort of a mess. Not too bad, though. It doesn't look like anything was torn off the body. It all looks pretty much there, but it 
his dad. I had worked in a funeral home for about a year and a half and was quite familiar with bodies and how they looked when they were lifeless. At this moment, I heard a voice behind me and turned. There, standing, still for black, lack of a better word, were two friends of mine who had been killed in a car wreck in 1983. They had been together when they were killed, as was fitting since they were always inseparable, and the three of us were closer than brother and sister. I went to both funerals and swore to myself that I would really like to have those two gals come to collect me, if that was how it was done when I died. Well, here they were. The amazing thing, looking back on it, was that I wasn't surprised in the least to see them there. I remember saying, for lack of a better word, but I think I was saying, Hey Lisa, hey Susan, in a nonchalant manner, as though I had just met them in the student union after a break in classes. I remember to, or I began to tell Lisa about my body. I said, hey Lisa, get a load of this sort of amused about the situation and sort of nodding toward myself seated in the car. I remember a feeling of total and utter freedom. There really aren't words to describe this feeling, but it was occurring to me that I could do anything I wanted in my current state. I could go anywhere, and no laws of physics dictated what I could do. I realized I could even go to the Eiffel Tower if I wanted. That was exact, my exact thought. However, I don't recall even wanting to go to the Eiffel Tower or even thinking anything about it prior to this or other than maybe in, to, in answer to a question on my fifth grade geography class quiz. I began to revel in my current feeling, a feeling of such well-being that even now I miss it. Lisa said, Brian, you must listen closely. Did she say there isn't much time or was that just information implied through the thought? Lisa continued, you must look and pointed or rather directed my attention in some other manner. It's hard to describe exactly how talking, moving, standing, etc. is done in this state to the western horizon. I noticed that pretty much all the world was muted, like a television that isn't getting good reception, and occasionally the black and white is broken by a blob of color, but pretty much it's black and white. In the sky, however, was my life. It was like seeing it on a movie screen, widescreen, in color, on a video cassette recorder that's stuck in fast forward. But rather than seeing it only, I was feeling it like I was in the life and standing with Lisa and Susan at the same time. The life played literally from my birth to my death. At the end of this life screen event, I was not left with anyone telling me, you sinned, you're a sinner, you did this and this and this and was bad and against the Ten Commandments. Rather, 
I was left to form an opinion of the life. Not so much in terms of I was a bad person, good person, but rather that was a good life. As objectively as though I was commenting on a special meal or the completion of a project just completed that pleased me exceptionally. I knew at that particular moment that there had been other lives. When they were completed, I had gone through identical or similar reviews, but was not curious about these other lives since they were done and I had completed them, leaving them of no further consequence. I knew that this life would be of no consequence now that it was done. I realized that I knew everything. There were no questions. All knowledge was instantly present in my thoughts. For example, I knew that everything created in any state was part of a huge concept. This was just some knowledge that I recall. However, I was able to explore that huge concept from the inside and be part of everything while thinking of it at the instant that I first thought of it. Confusing, isn't it? I knew that this was my actual state of being. It was a creature or being, as I now found myself, who had, for some time, used this lifeless piece of meat inside the car. I did feel somewhat sad for my body, though. Not being of further use, it sort of seemed like a waste, and it, seemed, and it had performed well for me. Like the feeling you get when you trade a car. None of this seemed to take long in our time, a period of about 20 seconds or so. All of this occurred to me, was thought of, and happened in that amount of time. Lisa said, or rather communicated, You must listen. There was an urgency to her words. You have to accomplish enough so you can go back with us. She paused. Or you can stay. But if you stay, we have to know why. And you have to tell us. You must know this if you stay. It's going to be very, very hard. I said flatly, I have to stay. Lisa asked, why? I stated, I don't have any children yet. This was important, but it was not emotional rather like a house I was supposed to paint and did, but it had started to rain and I was telling someone that I still needed another day to paint around the windows. I was aware that Susan had nothing, had said nothing during this, only Lisa. I noticed that beyond Susan, there was someone else. I realized that this person was listening intently and that I was not allowed to see him or her. This person appeared only as a huge presence that was perceivable only as waves of distortion, shielded from my consciousness so that I could not see him or her directly. For an example of this, look at the movie Predator with Arnold Schwarzenegger and pay attention to how the alien looks when it's cloaked. I, I was seeing that effect. 
I was not threatened by this and don't want to influence the reader utilizing my movie example of a dreadful cutthroat alien, but only wanted to provide a reference to the visual distortion used. There were no feelings of danger, only a realization of this presence. Lisa said, All right, you have to know that your heart stopped when you hit the steering wheel, but you will not have permanent injury from this. Your injuries will be a broken sternum, a cut on your finger, and you'll lose a couple of teeth. I said, okay, and heard, foof. Everything was black, and I was at first confused. I couldn't figure out where exactly I was. Then I heard a sound, like a far-off boom. There was then silence, and then another boom, and then another, and then another closer together. Then I heard a heartbeat sound, and another, and I realized that the booming was my heart starting. I remember thinking, why, that's my heart starting. Then the realization hit me that I needed to breathe. I needed a breath of air really, really bad. Like the feeling that you get when you're deep underwater and you don't know if you're going to make it to the surface before you run out of air. Now imagine how it would feel to realize that you didn't make it to the surface before running out of air. That feeling. I took the longest, deepest, gasping breath that I can ever recall taking. When it was finished, I opened my eyes and observed the scene and saw my hand begin to bleed. I shall not repeat all the particulars of the accident. However, I kept lapsing in and out of consciousness. Many times I could hear people talking but couldn't seem to react. At least three times that I recall, people felt my neck and said, this one's gone. When I finally raised my head and made a statement to the state trooper who was bent over at the driver's door of my car, copying my VIN number off my dash, he leapt back and yelled, Hey, this one's alive! Get over here! I remember an emergency medical technician in my car and vibration from extraction equipment. I remember a television camera and stating, Get the bleep camera out of my face! I remember being in an ambulance and a woman emergency medical technician sitting on a bench next to me. I remember asking her, where exactly are we? She said, you're in an ambulance. I said, no, where exactly on the road are we? How far from the city? She said, I'm afraid I have no way of knowing. There's only a little window. I remember saying, That's all right, I'll go out and look. I recall passing through the side of the ambulance and seeing a rock quarry that I used to use as a landmark and noting that we were almost to it. I went back through the side of the ambulance and told her, we're almost to the rock quarry. Good, we're getting close. The emergency medical technician got up, went to a small window on the side of the ambulance and said, oh, I see it. Yes, but how? She didn't finish that sentence, nor did she say anything else other than, you just lay quiet, we're almost there. Then she sat back down. Later, in the emergency room, the emergency medical technician from inside the car came and said, 
You look much better than you did a while ago. I told him I felt better. He said, In all the years I've been doing this, I've never checked anyone and been mistaken about them being living or dead until now. I told him, Who says you were mistaken? He had appeared concerned, but now he grinned and said, You be cool, man, and left. A nurse asked me if I had a background in the medical profession, as I had told people at the scene and in the emergency room that I had a broken sternum, a cut on my finger, and that I would lose two teeth. I told her that I was not in the medical profession. I recovered from my broken sternum, the cut on my hand, and had to get a couple of root canals done on my teeth. However, when in the hospital, I had so much trouble sleeping, every time I started to doze off, I could feel myself begin to float out of my body, and I knew I thought I was dying again, and knew I was supposed to stay, so I would wake myself up. Now, I would call this experience a five on the detail level and fascinating on many levels. <laughs> this is this is an example of of detail and and fascinating little bits of information that make great little data points in our in our efforts to understand uh, spirit and the afterlife and and the dying experience especially because he never goes to the light, but he is definitely having a very uh, detailed near-death experience. Okay, first off, it's interesting how time slows down. This happens over and over in near-death experiences. Sometimes it even triggers near-death experiences that don't end up being almost dying. You know, somebody thinks they're about to die and genuinely has every reason to believe they're about to die and it triggers a near-death experience, but then something slips so that they never actually get injured at all. But the thought, the assumption, the absolute knowledge, if you will, that they're going to die somehow plunges their spirit out of their body, and they begin this near-death experience. Now, this is not an example of that per se, but uh, um, because he clearly does hit pretty hard, and it I'm assuming from his broken sternum and and so forth that he probably hit his chest on the uh um dashboard because I mean not sorry on the uh on the uh, steering wheel uh, it, it seems to have stopped his heart he's he's really seriously injured but there's no lasting you know effects which is very, very, you know, he's very, very blessed that way. And he's told so that he's not going to have lasting injuries. But uh, anyway, he sees this car and he remembers it as a different kind of a car than what he experienced, which is interesting. I I don't know that there's anything to be made of that. It, it could just be an example of a um, inaccurate memory. Um, if you If you study the modern science understanding, scientific understanding of memory, it's kind of interesting because memory is recreated in the remembering of it. It's as if we're given the recipe um, and then 
every time we recall the incident, we're whipping up another batch of that memory. And what can happen sometimes is we, it's, there's a number of things that can cause it, but we can sometimes accidentally put in a wrong ingredient or change the ingredients. Uh, and, uh, and so you come out with a different product in the end, all of it being what you consider to be the true memory, but uh, either things can be taken out or put in that, uh, that you don't recall. Let, let me give you an example of that. And I, I, and I don't mean to go off on a tangent on this, but it is kind of pertinent to, uh, to many of the incidents leading up to the near-death experience because of the physical and mental trauma that's often associated with the accidents and so forth. And I don't think this tends to apply to the experience itself, but uh, it does tend to um, lead to, uh, it could lead to mistaken understanding of, of the events just prior or just after. Um, so I was working at a, at a private school and uh, the uh, students there were a little bit troublesome. This was not a, uh, you know, like a, a boys' home kind of a, a school. <coughs> it was not intended as a correction school. They were actually working to become kind of a college prep type of school, but somehow they just ended up getting some really uh, troublesome students. And uh, anyway, there was one day that the... Uh, I noticed the police showed up at the school. I had no idea. I was I was a janitor at the school, and uh, I was cleaning and so forth. And uh, and anyway, um, the head of the school comes to me and says, "Now the police are here. To they're investigating um, because last night the uh, local uh, service station." was broken into, and uh, I guess some candy or something stupid was stolen. And he says, you know, don't don't lie to him or anything, but but go easy. We're really trying to, you know, these these are good kids. They they have a long way to go, and you know, basically saying don't lie to them, but don't incriminate them either. Don't be be uh, uh, overly you know judgmental of them and so forth if they when they come and ask questions because they're asking everybody questions. And I was like, okay, you know, that's fine, you know, whatever. Um, I'm going to speak the truth, but I'll I'll try to be, you know, optimistic about the, if they ask what the kids are like and so forth, because they were good kids, but they had problems, clearly, <laughs> based on this situation. Anyway, I didn't know what they were going to be asking specifically and so forth, but Eventually, I was asked to come into the private room with the police, and they showed me a photo of a, uh, a crowbar of sorts. It's, it's not exactly a crowbar, but it's kind of a, a tool of sorts, a crowbar-like tool. And they asked me, have you seen this tool before? And I looked at it, and I didn't recognize it at all. It didn't look familiar at all. And I was like, no, I, I don't think I've seen that. And they were kind of like, okay, thank you for your help. And then they left, and then I left the room. And I was like, okay, well, that was easy enough. But about 15 minutes later, 
it was like kind of a duh moment. Like what the, what? Because that tool was a tool that I was using on a regular basis as part of a cleaning uh, procedure in, in a, in a room trying to get some putty and so forth off the floor. It was, it was really good for scrubbing the floor. Um, and I, in, it was like in a moment, this memory came back of, of using that tool for, I mean, like weeks on end, this was not an unfamiliar tool. Lately, it had been one of the most common tools I'd used. And I was like, how did I forget that? How could I have completely erased that memory? And so I ran, ran back over to the police and I said, you know what? I just remembered I have used that tool in the past for scrubbing floors and so forth. I, it was here. And I, I can go even see if it's here now. And I went and looked. It wasn't there. But, uh, but uh, I told them that that was there. And they're like, okay, thank you for your input. You know, they were, they were very non-pushy toward anything or the other. And later I was thinking about that. And I was like, what happened there? How is it that I didn't recognize this tool that I had used so much? when they showed me the picture, it was a very clear picture of the tool. It wasn't like an obscure image or anything, but I hadn't remembered. And I'm not somebody who's going to try to cover up a crime. And so I wasn't about to hide it. I wasn't going to say, oh, these kids are so bad. They should be behind bars and you know, whatever. No, no, they're good kids who had some difficulties and they needed to overcome those difficulties clearly. And, and since I remembered that tool, clearly they were guilty because this tool came out of my cleaning office because this tool was one that I regularly used. And at the time I was kind of like, man, you know, was, was the, the headmaster's words to me being, you know, t- telling me, you know, be, be gentle with them, don't incriminate them. And I was, you know, wanting to keep him happy. And yet, you know, had that so fouled my memory so as to not even be able to recognize the tool when I saw it. And I thought, did he hamper my memory? And it wasn't until this research later on, learning this research about memory, um, that I realized there's another possibility. And that is the possibility that I had never actually used that tool, but rather in my searching my memory and wanting to be honest and wanting to make sure and so forth. And did my brain create this whole backlog of memory of using this tool? Unfortunately, by the time I learned this research and had that curiosity, I didn't work at the school anymore. And so I had no way of knowing if that tool genuinely did exist or at least, you know, obviously it existed because the police had a photo of it, but I don't know whether the police photo is the only time I've ever actually seen that tool. And that my brain created this false memory of having used it for, you know, weeks or months or whatever it was. I don't remember. 
and or had the headmaster's words actually prepared my mind to simply not recognize it, meaning to erase all that memory of all that time using that tool. Either one is bizarre, and yet it showed me that that set of circumstances, whatever it did, it created a formula that made me, made my memory broken in some level. Either I had erased many weeks of memory of using the tool, or it had created a memory of many weeks of using that tool. And to this day, I don't know which it is. I don't know which it is. I hope I didn't incriminate kids um, by creating a false memory. But, I mean, I, I was honest. I told them that I don't remember, and then later that I did remember. That was a fact. That was, I, I did have a memory, whether it was a real one or a false one. Anyway, uh, the point is, it, you know, you hear about these kind of things in uh, lawsuits and so forth, false memories. Do you remember seeing a red car turning around the corner at that moment? Well, no, I don't remember seeing, but I, I, I mean, there might have been one I didn't notice. But And then later, being like, yeah, wait a minute, I, I think I do remember. I remember seeing a red, and then the memory is created so vividly that they're like, I remember even the, the flash of, of a reflection of light kind of temporarily blinding me, leaving one of those stripes across my eyes. I mean, it gets really detailed, these kind of false memories. And I guess that should be something to take into consideration with near-death experiences, because is it possible that sometimes near-death experiences are recreated memories? Possibly, sometimes, but I seriously doubt most of the time. However, in this situation, I think the uh, car being a Lincoln Town car, um, a mid-70s Lincoln Town car, which from what the reports later said, no, it was a mid-sized, mid-80s Oldsmobile. It was a totally different car than what he remembered seeing. Somehow a false memory was created, which is interesting. Very interesting. Anyway, moving along. <laughs> the slowing of time. This happens over and over it's it's and and there's a breaking of of the mortal experience too because he's he's hearing wind and he's like that's really weird where's the wind he should be hearing the screeching of tires the the motor of the car the uh, whatever you know i mean there should be sounds related to the accident that he's hearing or noticing rather than noticing the sound of wind unless he's beginning to have a near death experience which turns out to be the case because as he's there, he remembers his chin dropping to his chest, which a person should not remember because the moment you go unconscious should be the, mem the moment that perception stops. But he does remember his chin falling to his chest, which tells me his spirit had left his body, but was still in the same space as his body. Now, I think this is important to point out because there are a number of times when somebody outside of their body, they can pass through walls, they can walk through, you know, everything around them, around the people, whatever, but they can't seem to get in their body, which leaves you wondering, but if you can walk through walls, why can you not take the space of your body? And I think the answer is they can, but they're not sticking. They're not, <laughs> they're not uh, clinging kind of like, 
kind of like when your eyes are, you know, get wigged out by a pattern or something, you know, maybe you're looking through a fence and your eyes get kind of confused and you're like, I can't seem to lock the focus here for a second. And, and there's a few moments of just like, I can't get in. I can't, I can't pin myself down, if you will. And I think that's often what's happening when people say they couldn't get back in their body. They try over and over. And people say, try going in through the head, try going in through the chest, try going in through the feet, different things. And, and, uh, you know, more often it's either head or chest that they seem to go through, but you know, there's no hard, fast rule on these things. I don't even know how that works. But uh, anyway, so the fact of his head falling down and him remembering that, and then I believe, yeah, he talks about the foofing sound, and he describes foof. You know, he's very specific about about this foof sound. He's like, that's what it sounded like. And then he says that he stands up. Well, he says, I was standing, for lack of a better word. The elevation was about right for standing. And I seem to be generally vertical in orientation to the rest of the world. That little description there says, it wasn't like standing, standing. But that's the closest thing I can come up with. Now, what's really going on? I don't know. Is he this floating consciousness and he's just in the position where his head would be if he were standing? I don't know. I don't know. But the fact that he's being so detailed about it allows us a little bit of leeway to speculate, a little bit of leeway to make more data points. Are people who are out of the body, are they really feeling like normal or are they feeling out of sorts and the answer is probably sometimes and then other times they really do feel like they're in the body so i you know we, we just seem to keep uh, uh muddying the water with our with the clarity of what's going to happen when we die i don't know <laughs> but i can tell you what other people have experienced interesting so he's standing there and he sees his body and then he sees um, let me just see here if he says where they came from. He says, um, at that moment, I heard a voice behind me and turned. He turns, apparently, and there standing, again, he says, for lack of a better word, because, you know, I don't know a better word for it than standing. He says, there standing were two friends of mine who had been killed in a car wreck in 1983. Now, if you've been following these experiences, this is totally, I mean, this is, you know, what you would expect from a near-death experience. This is very stereotypical. There's people there that he knows. There these two girls that he was really good friends with, really good friends with, and had even thought uh, at their passing that I hope they meet me when I die. And when they come, when I hope they come to collect me. And... They did. They did. Those kind of thoughts, which is another thing, those thoughts of how you want your death to take place, they have power. I don't know how much. I don't know to what level. I don't know if you get every whim that you, that you seek. I don't know. But when you think to yourself, I really hope my grandpa is there to greet me when I die. There's a really good chance that he will be because you thought that. 
if you think to yourself, and this, this sounds funny, but there's people thinking these kind of things and they get their wish. But they think, I, I want a picnic. I want to have a picnic with food and, and people that I know and love and picnic in the park, you know, with, with a potluck type dinner. I, I want that when I die. Often they get it. They get that when they die. So if you have desires around what kind of death experience you want, and I'm not talking about, you know, who speaks at your funeral and so forth. Obviously, that's the case because we can write that information down, tell it to other people, and it'll happen. It'll happen. But think in your mind, maybe even speak out loud to other people, whatever. Voice these uh, these desires. What kind of death do you want? Who do you want to be there? Who do you want to see? Where do you want to go? Because there's a chance that you just might get that. Anyway, so he starts ca talking casually to these girls, like, hey, how's it going? Check this out. And he seems slightly amused at the sight of his body there. That's another thing that I find interesting. And also, it's a green flag because, you know, green flag being, huh, that sounds real to me. That sounds legit to me because it seems that in the spirit, while loud and raucous situations tend to irritate or bug us as spirits, you know, annoy us, if you will, you know, when people are like, come back, come back, you've got to wake up, you know, and, and all the all the mess, you know, while we in the mortal body, we hear that and they're like, we're like, whoa, what's that? What's going on over there? And we kind of get into this curiosity, interest kind of a thing. It seems that in the spirit, we tend to have more of like an annoyance toward that kind of, of noise and, and, and kerfuffle. You know, we're just like, eh, I don't, I don't want to be here. This is unpleasant kind of thing. But yet at this point, it's just him and the body and so forth. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of shouting and fear. And he's just sitting there and his dead body's there. He's just curious. And he's like, hey, check this out. That seems to be consistent with how people have described their experiences in the spirit, how they felt and so forth. And also his description of, of how he thought of his body, what he's thinking about his body. He says, He says that, that, um, you know, it was, it was like, uh, you know, it, he just uh, completed a big project and he felt good about it and so forth. He says, he says, as he's leaving his body or looking at his body, it's almost like the feeling of trading in a car, an old car and saying like, man, I'm going to miss that car, but it's time to move on. I'm going to miss that hunk of junk, whatever, you know, it, it, there's good memories with that car kind of thing. You know, I've heard of people saying, you know, taking off an old coat and the good memories you have with that coat to trade, you know, to put it away for the winter or for the summer or whatever. There's that feeling of like, ah, oh, I'm going to miss that. Probably for those that, um, that uh, don't do real Christmas trees, it's probably like taking the tree down. Some aspect of you is saying, good riddance. And then other parts of you are going to say, man, it's kind of sad taking it down, you know. I think there's a feeling about that, or there's a, there tends to be a feeling like that for a lot of people. And it's not everyone, not everyone, but many people, they have kind of an old coat feeling about their body as they're leaving it. So that's kind of interesting. And they're usually kind of surprised at how 
sick it looks uh, occasionally <laughs> like uh, I think it was um uh Betty Edie she's like oh, I didn't realize I was so pretty <laughs> which is kind of a sweet thought most people it's like man I thought I was better looking than that <laughs> and I mean they're staring at a dead body it's going to be pale and awful looking you know hair all you know, whatever but <laughs> but that's that's more the thoughts that most people have anyway and so he gives this description of somebody being behind the two girls that he recognizes and knows and there's these waves of distortion I have not seen predator with Arnold Schwarzenegger so I don't know what that looks like but but you know he says it that's that's the closest um explanation that I can give or the closest example of what this looked like not not all the horrible situation but the the feeling or but the uh, imagery of of the um cloaked effect that's what it was like and who is this being behind him I don't know but he describes it as being a big presence, a huge presence. And it's interesting also when the, the girls point out, if you decide to go back, you need to know why. And so, you know, you're going to come with us, in which case, you know, it, it's not good if you come now. But if you go back, you do need to know why. Uh, so, so he says, I need to go back. And she says, this is very important. Why do you need to go back? And he says, I haven't had my children yet. Now, at the time, if I'm understanding this right, at the time, he hadn't been considering, you know, children. That, that, that wasn't really a thing on his mind as a mortal. But as a spirit, that was important to him for some reason. And there wasn't any deep emotionalness about it. He was just like, oh, I haven't had children yet. Yet I've got to go back. Interesting. It's as if he had a glimpse into his life purpose, which not many people get, which is interesting to me. People go and they're told, you haven't filled, finished your purpose yet. But they're not told what that purpose is. Or if they are, they're not allowed to keep the memory of what they are told it is. And they come back and they're like racking their brain like, what is my purpose? I can't remember. I know there was an intense sense of purpose. And he kind of gets a hint because he says, I haven't had children yet. And that seems to be enough because next thing, he, you know, he's back in his body. And as they're, you know, ambulance and all that, you know, racing him off to the hospital. This is an interesting point. As he's racing in the emergency, I mean in the uh, in in the ambulance, he asks him where are, where exactly are we? And he says you're in an ambulance. And he's like, no, I mean, where exactly on the road are we? How far from the city? And she's like, I'm afraid I don't know. There's only one little window. And he's uh, he's like, that's all right. I'll check. And he passes through the side of the ambulance. He leaves his body, passes through the side of the ambulance, sees the rock quarry. And comes back and says, oh, we're, we're just about to the rock quarry. And she's like, gets up and looks out the window and she's like, oh, I see it. Yeah. But how? And she doesn't finish her sentence. She's just kind of like, you just stay quiet. We're almost there. <laughs> That's an interesting little evidence bit and a cool one. And yet, 
one that also tells us something interesting about this time of being out of the body. He's able to slip out of the body and slip back in without any problems. It's not like his heart stopped right then, or at least if it did, they didn't notice. I would think being in an ambulance and monitors hooked up likely and so forth, they probably would notice that. Probably his heart probably didn't stop. But his spirit has been loosened from his body, if you will. It's come off a couple of times already, and so now it comes on and off easily, you might say. And so he seems to be drifting in and out of mortality, if you will. His spirit is not fully locked into his body, but his body is not fully broken anymore. They seem to be stabilizing, and yet, again, when he gets to the hospital for a while, every time he dozes off, he's uh, he goes he seems to drift out of his body, and he has to wake himself up in order to keep himself in his body. It's so bizarre and so interesting. But again, this is a coming back story. I suspect that most people won't experience that. They will just die when they die. But there may be some time, either after or before, of drifting in and out. I am left to wonder, when you look at what uh, Alzheimer's and, and dementia patients go through, you know, people talk about them going crazy or, or you know, they'll just say weird things and stuff. I, I could be wrong. I'm guessing. I don't know. But I think a lot of the times... The reason it sounds so weird is because they are drifting out and in from their body and they're experiencing stuff. I don't know. I don't know. Just a thought. If you have a loved one with dementia or Alzheimer's or one of those um, things where it seems like they're just losing their mind slowly until they die, uh, try listening to what they're saying. And, you know, if they say, I was just over there and this and that and... And they're not too agitated by the question, um, or you don't think they'll be agitated by the question. You could say, are you leaving your body and coming back in? Because that is possible. Could you be leaving your body and coming back in? And, you know, depending on their views on the afterlife and spirits and so forth, they may say, yeah. Or they may say, what are you talking about? No, I was just there, you know. And, and you can, you know, it might be interesting. Well, step up to the window, take a look outside and come tell me what you see. And if they say, well, I just see this and this, and they tell you what's outside, then that may be what's going on. I don't know. It'd be an interesting experiment. One you have to be careful about. I mean, somebody's dying, obviously, or at least coming close to that, and you got to be really sensitive to people. But it would be interesting to hear that about this. So, anyway... If you would like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash ndecast and becoming an ongoing monthly contributor. Also, you can contact the podcast either to share your experience or to ask a question or make a comment by calling in, uh, sorry 970-NDECAST or by emailing Podcast at gmail.com. Our homepage is near-death-experience-podcast.org. 
If you have friends that uh, you think could be touched by these things, that it could make a difference for them, share share an episode with them. Just a favorite episode that means something to you. And, uh, you know, because, I don't know, these things to me bring great hope. And to many people, they bring great hope. They restore their faith in God. Because, I mean, we're not talking here about a religion. There is no church of near-death experiences. If there was, it would be so divided as to not be a church. And it's not just a non-denominational thing either. There is so much diversity in the in the depth of the spiritual experiences people are having that you can't say that, well, we don't believe in this type of a God. We believe in this type of a God because what somebody experiences, they experience. You can't deny that. You can't go and say, oh, well, that's not true what you experienced. I mean, they experienced something. And whether you agree with the uh, doctrinal uh, uh, specifics or not, it, that's really irrelevant because your agreement does not change their experience. Now, whether their experience was what they think it was, I don't know. Whether they are seeing God as he really is, his face with the color, eye color that he has, or whether that's just some spiritual mental perception that's placed on, over them to help him, them understand him or whatever. You know, I mean, there's, there's so many explanations that you can give for these things, but that's not the point of this podcast. The point of this podcast is to share these experiences. So if this podcast means something to you, if it's touched you, share it with someone. See if you can help someone else to have greater hope and look forward to the future that we are all headed toward. And with that, thank you all of you again so much for listening. Thank you.